Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the modern world, there's two problems with the way we use the word trauma. One is that we use it a bit too loosely, too promiscuously, I would say. On the other sense, in the medical world, in the legal world, in the political world, where trauma needs to be recognized for the overarching dynamic that it represents, it's barely even mentioned. So the average medical student literally does not get a single lecture on trauma, which is unbelievable. So what is trauma then? Trauma is an unhealed wound that until it's healed, keeps hurting and keeps us behaving in ways that keeps us hurting. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a podcast for you to relax, drift off, and allow your mind to wander. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and researcher on a mission to share information that will help you live happier, healthier, and with more love, optimism, and wisdom. This podcast features interviews with well-known guests and world-leading experts about what it truly means to be human and what we can do to become the very best versions of ourselves. I am so unbelievably honored to welcome Dr. Gabor Mate and Daniel Mate to discuss their latest and deeply needed book, The Myth of Normal. Dr. Gabor Mate is a world-renowned physician and trauma expert who's written numerous best-selling books and changed the lives of millions through his pioneering work with addiction, mental health, and trauma for over 30 years. His breakthrough work has helped shed light on the connections between physical and mental health and has influenced the way we think about and treat mental illness. Dr. Gabel's co-author is his son, Daniel Mate, who is an acclaimed composer, lyricist, who has written celebrated musicals and novels amongst many other accomplishments. Together, they host workshops and they help so many people. And in this fantastically thought-provoking and timely book, they draw your attention to the role that social and environmental factors play in mental health. This book shares extensive evidence detailing how the problems so many of us face are not individual, but a natural consequence of a broken culture and unattended psychic wounds. I have more compassion for myself and everyone else after reading this incredible book, and I can't wait to discuss it further with these two heroes who wrote it. I'd love for you to share a piece of writing that resonates with you both to begin with. Sure. I'll read something from uh, the last section of the book, which is where we get to the healing part, because the subtitle is Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, so... I'll skip to the heartwarming part, I guess you could say. True healing simply means opening ourselves to the truth of our lives, past and present, as plainly and objectively as we can. We acknowledge where we were wounded and, as we are able, perform an honest audit of the impacts of those injuries as they have touched both our own lives and those of others around us. A clear look at how it is, how things actually happen to be at this moment. This is the kind of truth that ushers in healing. To access it, we will have to tap into something more resourceful than our smarts. 
Why did you choose that piece to begin with? Well, I feel like what this section does is lays out some principles. I mean, the way I think about it is it's not like we have to heal as an action. We each get to participate in healing that wants to happen anyway. And the question is, what does healing want from us? What does it require from us? What does it respond um, to? What language does it speak? What's the love language of healing, in other words? So it's like a, a river that we start to ride in the direction it's actually going. So I think this section is speaking to a basic attitude of willingness that is the first and maybe the only real prerequisite for embarking on that journey. Dr. Gabber, what was your piece you'd like to share? Well, we didn't plan this, discuss it, and I had no opportunity to do so, but the quote I'd like to cite here is precisely on point with what Diana just read. The teacher, the spiritual teacher, H, and psychologist H. Alma, so do quote in the book, I don't know if we quote this one or not, but it's one of my favorites by him. Your conflicts, all the difficult things, the problematic situations in your life are not chance or haphazard. They're actually yours. They're specifically yours, designed for you by a part of you that loves you more than anything else. The part of you that loves you more than anything else has created roadblocks to lead you to yourself. You're not going to go in the right direction unless there's something pricking you on the side telling you, look here, this way. That part of you that loves you so much that it doesn't want you to lose the chance. It will go to extreme measures to wake you up. It will make you suffer greatly if you don't listen. What else can it do? That's its purpose. And one of the themes in the book is that our maladies and our ailments and our afflictions, not that I would wish it on anybody, but in almost every case, there are opportunities, in fact, there are demands that we should learn something. We have a chapter called The Dreadful Gift, The Diseases Teacher. And what struck me in my medical career is how often illness, which most of us would naturally respond to as a catastrophe, actually was welcomed, at least ultimately utilized by people, as an important teacher about something in their lives. So when people develop a depression or anxiety or an addiction or autoimmune disease, even malignancy sometimes, it is an opportunity to learn because these afflictions, they don't just happen. They're not accidental. They're not random misfortune. There are expressions of our lives and they can teach us something about our lives. Again, not that I would congratulate anybody on getting sick or wish for anybody to do so, but I've seen so often the deep lessons that people can derive from their experiences. So all these difficulties, as Alma says, are opportunities for us to wake up. Might we split the difference between opportunity and demand and call it an invitation? It's an invitation, yeah. It's an invitation to learn. If somebody is listening to this and they are facing a diagnosis or some sort of life crisis, what question would help them perhaps explore that invitation? Well, we can make three assumptions about illness of any kind. One is that it's random misfortune bestowed upon us by some ill luck. You can look at it that way. It doesn't give you much to work with, does it? Number two, we can see it as some genetically determined uh, disaster, which in 99% of cases is just not true. There are some very rare genetically determined diseases, but very few. Or we can see it, number three, as the manifestations of our lives. That there's something about our lives that has created internal and external conditions that conduce to 
the onset of that illness. Now, that, in fact, is the case. If I look at people with, whether it's so-called mental illness or chronic physical illnesses, in most cases, there's some aspects of their lives that people didn't realize, they didn't consciously engage in, they didn't choose it, they don't deserve it, it's not a punishment. But nevertheless, there's some trauma in childhood, there's some patterns of stress, unwittingly self-imposed stress in adult life that set the template and contribute to the onset of disease. And if we can look at our lives and say, well, what is it about my life? Not to blame myself for it, because I didn't do it deliberately, but is there something about how I lived my life unwittingly that has made my immune system and nervous system and cardiovascular system more susceptible to illness? Then what can I learn from that so as to prevent that from happening again? And what can help me heal my present illness? So to me, that's a very positive question of what is it about my life that this illness may manifest that I hadn't realized before? And when I talk to most people, it doesn't take long for them to see what is it that unwittingly they may have taken on in life that have triggered triggered their illness. And, you know, I know we're talking to a large audience of women. One question that comes up immediately is, why is it that 80% of autoimmune disease happens to women? Now, we can ask that, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. Why is the rate of multiple sclerosis increasing amongst women as opposed to amongst men, or much more so in women than in men? Well, is it about something about the lives of women in this culture that stresses women that brings on the illness? Are there roles that women are programmed, acculturated into accepting and fulfilling unwittingly that trouble their immune systems? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. And if we ask those questions, then the answers about how to heal and how to prevent illness become very evident. Just circling back to the beginning of Gabor's answer and to your question, Poppy, if I zoom the question out and ask what's the basic attitudinal shift for anyone who's facing any sort of adversity of the kinds that we write about in this book, I think the basic attitudinal shift is As always, I think it's a very slight pivot, but even pivoting one degree, when you get 50 miles down the road, that one degree difference is going to land you at a very different place. So usually the way we frame it would be, why is this happening to me? Which isn't actually a question. It's a statement of, woe is me, damn life, damn God, damn the universe, damn luck, you know, or it could be complaint or self-pity or just woe and despair completely understandable. The thing is, it doesn't lead anywhere particularly fruitful if we stay there. So then the the slight shift would be moving from, why is this happening to me, to what is this for? What is this for? What if I just tried on the possibility that this is for me in some way, that there's something in this for me, that this is being delivered to me by life, I don't have to understand the justice of it, but what is the invitation here? What is this bringing? What is, you know, what in me wants to be retired or what in me is ready to die? What in, what in me is ready to be put in the past? What parts of me am I, might I reclaim? What might I create? So you can see how just that's, that one little shift leads to a bunch of much more fruitful questions that doesn't mean it's it's not about positive thinking it's not about spiritual bypass no you got to be a human being dealing with human adversity 
just that shift to putting a genuine question mark at the end of that question, and then actually leaving some space for the answer and genuinely wondering seems to have a powerful effect for people. And it certainly has for me anytime I've faced my chronic types of adversity. And I'm so happy you mentioned that this is not positive thinking and nor is it spiritual bypassing, which I think adds to, in some ways, the toxicity that's keeping us all from healing in, in the ways that we can. To start with this idea of the toxic culture that you address, if there's even possible out of the many toxic parts, which worries you most and requires the most attention, do you think, in our culture? The one that's common to everything is people being directed away from themselves and from their authentic feelings and their gut feelings. That happens early in childhood to most of us in this culture. But once that happens, then we become sitting ducks for the manipulations of the culture because we no longer can tell what's good for us and what isn't good for us. In fact, what we take to be normal is often very unnatural and unhealthy, but being divorced from our two selves, we can no longer tell. So we take on foods and relationships and roles and cultural values and behaviors and situations that are completely unhealthy, but we don't have the inner GPS, as my son Daniel puts it, to guide us in the right direction. So I think that's the basic one, is that disconnection from ourselves, really, which really we define as the essence of trauma. Well, and then it's twin. The one that I would focus on, the one that pops to mind for me is our disconnection from each other and from everything except our individual ego. It's a paradox. We get disconnected from our true selves, but we get completely yeah. then welded to a solid yeah. concept of self. But the flip side of that is, that is that if you don't succeed, the consequences of estrangement from the larger capital S self and, and everyone else in the world, well, when you fall down, buddy, tough luck, you screwed up, it's your fault. So if you look at any sane culture throughout history that had a, a genuine transmission of wisdom and culture and healthy myth and all, all that, they understood that we're not separate from anything. Everything is connected. It's a toxic lie, actually. It's a falsehood, but it's a necessary falsehood for this society to justify itself and perpetuate itself, because otherwise, what the hell are we doing? If I can give a concrete uh, health-related example of that, actually, in a British context, Tony Blair, the former prime minister, and I'm going to quote from the book here, which along the lines that John, Daniel was just saying, he says, um, in an atomized materialistic culture, People are induced to take everything personally, to see their own mental and physical distress as misfortunes or even failures belonging to them alone. Take the picture painted by the former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, to this day a sought-after, well-remunerated spokesperson for the desocializing ethic, that is, for bleaching the social out of society. Many health problems, he said, are, quote, not strictly speaking public health problems at all. The questions of lifestyle, obesity, smoking, alcohol abuse, diabetes, sexually transmitted diseases, these are not epidemics in the epidemiological sense, he says. They are the result of millions of individual decisions at millions of points in time. What Blair ignores is all the evidence that's showing that the more stress and trauma there is in society, the more inequality, the more uncertainty the more people are going to turn to alcohol and food and smoking 
and unhealthy behaviors as a way of escaping the socially imposed stress. So typically, and this mirrors the medical point of view as well, he looks upon his issues as individual decisions. Now, it's true. There's individuals making these decisions, but those decisions are conditioned by social and economic and cultural factors. And he doesn't want to recognize that because if he did, he'd have to change society. And atone for the impact of his policies for unexacerbating that exact context. You know, when you look at the rising obesity problem in Britain, in the United States, in Canada, uh, the diabetes, the heart disease, all these issues, these are not individual decisions. These are socially imposed, culturally created responses to stress. This reminds me of two points you made in the book. First of all, your term, the cocalization, like coca, I think that was how you pronounced it. Coca colonization. Yes. We, yes. Didn't, we didn't coin that. Someone else came up with that. Ah, uh, okay. That relates very much to what you're saying. And also, towards the end of the book, I noted down this, the people who are sick are like the canaries in the mine. We should appreciate them as they are the ones alerting us to danger. I'd love to talk about that because that metaphor really stuck out. That came from a, a friend of mine whose name is Louis Malmadrona, and he's an American psychiatrist and physician, partly indigenous Lakota background. And he told me that in his Lakota tradition, in the tradition indigenous way of looking at illness, when somebody gets ill, the community says, thank you. Your illness is manifesting some dysfunction in our community. So you're helping us see what's wrong with our whole community. So our healing, your healing is our healing. Now, what's interesting about that is that scientifically it's absolutely true. And in this book, we show the modern science that documents how illness as an individual is a manifestation of uh, social factors, of familial histories, of interactions, relationships, and so on. In this Lakota indigenous edition, they're actually saying just that, 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 that this sick individual is the canary in the mine, and that therefore we have to honor them for manifesting some dynamic about the whole community, which is both the traditional way of looking at it, it's also the only scientific way of looking at it, and it's completely ignored in medical practice. Let's go back to basics. What is trauma and how do we know we're carrying trauma, especially if this is deeply unfamiliar territory to you? Well, so first of all, in the modern world, there's two problems with the way we use the word trauma. One is that we use it a bit too loosely, too promiscuously, I would say, so that, you know, I went on a picnic and it rained and all our food got soggy and wet and I was traumatized. No, you weren't. You were just disappointed and upset. So not everything that's stressful is traumatic. Everything that's traumatic is painful and stressful, but not every stress and pain is trauma. That's the first point. In that sense, we use it too often. On the other sense, in the medical world, in the legal world, in the political world, where trauma needs to be recognized for the overarching dynamic that it represents, it's barely even mentioned. So the average medical student literally does not get a single lecture on trauma which is unbelievable, considering the science linking trauma and all kinds of illness of mind and body. So what is trauma then? Trauma, properly speaking, look at the Greek word origin, means a wound. So trauma is a psychic wound that we sustain that has an impact later on. One of the impacts of trauma is that separation from ourselves that I mentioned earlier. Basically, how it shows up in your life, whenever you're, you're involved in a repeated pattern that doesn't work for you and you're stuck in it it's a trauma imprint say in relationships where you keep getting into relationships that are not good for you 
It's trauma that's driving it, whether you know that or not. Whenever you get so-called triggered, when you get really upset about something somebody said, and then you look at it later and say, well, what was I so upset about? Some trauma, some unhealed wound got triggered. Trauma is an unhealed wound that until it's healed, keeps hurting and keeps us behaving in ways that keeps us hurting. Daniel, would you say anything else to that? Well, so I usually use a hockey metaphor. It's not the cross check to the head, it's the concussion. It's not the illegal tackle in international football. It's the broken ankle, you know, it's the injury that lasts. And even if it heals up sufficient to be able to walk around on it or even be able to play on it again, old injuries tend to flare up sometimes. So traumas can, they don't all take the form of something that's constantly nagging us. They can be buried underneath layers and layers of very high functioning and not seem urgent to deal with because we, we are coping with them very well. And many people develop some of their most successful, trusty personality traits on top of these very locations where the wound is. So what's the problem? Well, there's two problems. Number one, it's compulsive. If I have that compulsive strength, so for instance, for me, it would be cleverness, being the smartest guy in the room. Except when your dad is present. Well, that's not what you say when we're in (laughs) private. (laughs) If I have to be that, and if I'm not being that, I'm experiencing anxiety and I'm experiencing distress and tension and restlessness, that's not a very stable strength, is it? It has an addictive quality. I can never get enough of it. And it gets me results, but it's also the source of anxiety. And uh, also because it's compulsive, I can't distinguish from situation to situation when is it appropriate, when is it not appropriate. The other downside is if we get too attached to it, life has a way of pulling the rug out from under us and revealing that wound. And then we're like, why is this happening to me? Because our entire sense of self gets bowled over. If our go-to strengths are all of a sudden exposed to be liabilities. The other thing I would add is that trauma is not, this is an important distinction, it's not what happens to you, it's what happens inside you, like Diane was saying. Also, you don't need terrible things to be traumatized. In other words, some people do experience extreme hardship, adversity in childhood, you know, abuse of all kinds, neglect, poverty, racism. Those are traumatic. But you can also wound kids. If you remember the meaning of the word trauma comes from the word wound, you can wound kids not only by doing terrible things to them, but also by not meeting their needs. And in this culture, the way we raise kids, even in good families, because of a cultural impulses and cultural teachings and expectations, a lot of children don't get their actual needs met for healthy development. So we can wound kids simply by not giving them what they need in terms of emotional support, understanding, attunement, acceptance, valuation, and so on. And the final thing I'll say is that just as in my own family, with my own son and other children, trauma is multi-generational. We tend to have kids before we worked out our traumas, and that almost always means that we tend to pass on some of our traumas, at least to our kids, not because we mean to, not because we don't love our kids, but simply because we cannot help it because we're not aware of it. So traumas with all these facets. Do you think it's because we have deeply confused wants and needs for our own selves? And so we have misunderstood what the difference between a want and a need of a child might be? Well, the 
essence of the consumer culture, in fact, the dynamo that motivates consumer culture is selling people stuff they don't need, but they think they do. In other words, to confuse wants and needs. Now, there are three kinds of people who confuse wants and needs. One is a two-year-old child. When a two-year-old child wants a cookie, they really believe they need the cookie. And if you don't give them the cookie, they go into despair and rage, you know? The second kind of person who confuses a want and a need is, an, is a person who's addicted to anything. Hey. To drugs or behaviors or sex or pornography or gambling or shopping, whatever. When the desire comes along, it's experienced as, a, as an absolute need that has to be met immediately. So that's the second kind of person. The third kind of person is the average consumer because the whole culture is based on selling stuff you don't need. You don't need the latest iPad. You don't need it. You don't need the latest iPhone. But you don't need an iPhone at all. All you need is food and oxygen. Everything else is an artificial, I'm being a bit facetious, but almost everything else is an artificial need. And look at the zillions of dollars that go into creating commercials in a commercial culture that's based on convincing people that they need stuff they may want, but they don't, not only do they not need, it's not even good for them. So in this culture, what you just said, Poppy, about the confusing the wonder need, that's the dominant driving ethic. Many of us are in those cold winter months and my latest secret to unwind and relax is Stove. Stove is the company that creates the best heated chair covers and cordless heated cushions to keep you warm and cozy sustainably with infrared heated technology. Stove is like a warm hug and it not only warms you up, it's environmentally friendly and saves you money. It's quite genius if I'm being honest. I've noticed that using my stove is far more efficient form of heating as it warms just me, making sure I'm always snug and comfortable instead of needing to heat my whole room, meaning I can turn my thermostat down those extra few degrees. Even as I chat to you right now, I'm cuddled up with my stove fluffy infrared blanket. So if you're interested in cozying up this cold season with a warm stove, just head to their website, uk.stove.com, and I'll put that in the show notes to see everything they have on offer. They have plenty of different colors and fabrics to suit your style. Also, very excitingly, I have 10% offer for you. Simply enter the code UNWIND at checkout. It's the perfect reason to unwind during this cold season. There's one part of trauma I found in the book fascinating, which is the trauma linked to people-pleasing, because I think this is also linked to breast cancer, vulnerability too. Would you mind explaining how trauma and people-pleasing and perfectionism is linked? Sure. So in, in medical practice, I noticed that the people who develop chronic illness, often malignancy or autoimmune disease, statistically, we're talking mostly about women that they had certain characteristics. And one of them was that they tended to suppress their own emotional needs to meet the emotional needs of others automatically. They had difficulty saying no to other people's expectations. They had this belief that they were responsible for other people feel and they must never disappoint anybody. And they tended to believe that their job was to absorb other people's stresses and not deal with their own. Again, culturally, that duty is thrust mostly upon women in this culture. Now, how that leads to illness is very straightforward. Not that most physicians know this. 
they don't know it, not because the science doesn't exist to prove it, but because the science is not presented to them in their education, but that the mind and body are not separable, so that our emotional system is not separated in real life from our immune system, our nervous system, and from our hormonal apparatus. It's all one system. And the science that studies the unity of all these subsystems is called psychoneuroimmunology, which has now for close to 100 years, but increasingly in the last few decades, shown how the immune system is directly part and parcel of the same apparatus as, say, the emotional system. Now, if emotionally you're suppressing yourself to please others, to be a people pleaser, guess what? You're also suppressing your immune system because they're the same apparatus. They're different aspects of the same apparatus. And if you actually look at what the role of emotions are, the role of emotions are is to set a boundary. Now, what does a boundary do? A boundary lets in what is healthy and natural and nutritious and keeps out what is toxic and unhealthy. That's the job of the emotional system. What's the job of the immune system? It's a boundary. It lets in what is healthy and natural and nutritious and keeps out what is toxic and dangerous. They're the same system. When you're suppressing one aspect of that system, you're messing with the other. So people that are people pleasers, they suppress their own emotions, they don't have the boundaries, they don't know how to say no, their immune system suffers as well. And so they're more prone for malignancy and they're more prone for autoimmune disease. Nobody's born being a people pleaser. We're born very much in touch with our bodies and expressing our needs and setting our boundaries. When something happens to us in childhood where we suppress all that and then we keep doing it for the rest of our lives until we get sick. That's just that simple. That makes a lot of sense, and this also leads me to a part of the book which I really wanted to draw the attention to, um, which was the strong message you share around the fact that anxiety and mental disturbance is not often a sign something is inherently wrong with you, but a sign that we are withholding truth from ourselves. It's a sign that we are not being authentic to our true selves and sun way. And I just paused and thought, wow, if more people could understand that their anxiety and depression, to go back to your first point at the beginning of this podcast, was more of an invitation, is absolutely life-changing. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. One of the most crystallizing moments of my life, and I love it when things crystallize, when things that are complicated become simple, when things that are diffuse become coherent. Those are my favorite moments. And I remember sitting in a psychiatrist's office of all places and, and the psychiatrist asking me, Have, has anyone ever suggested to you that you might be on the spectrum of bipolar disorder? And the minute she said it, something crystallized and something about my life history became coherent. It was an invitation to me. All of a sudden, what had been an affliction all of a sudden made sense to me. I could see that this is not random depression. It's not random periods of overexcitement and compulsive commitment to things, you know, like getting engaged and married very quickly, which happened to me and then divorced not long afterwards. I was able to thread it back to the kind of childhood I had. And given the temperament I had and given the house I grew up in, what these patterns of mental instability, let's say, are showing me about myself is that what I deeply crave is not excitement and it's not to hide under the covers depressed, it's stability. And that's my birthright. And that's what I was 
denied, not by anyone deliberately, but by the circumstances into which I was born. Diagnoses can become a box, they can become a new identity, they can become a new sort of constraint, or they can become a useful umbrella, a useful frame, a useful way of grouping and understanding patterns inside of ourselves. And we have a whole chapter, even a constellation of chapters, that are really inviting people to make sense of the things that seem the least sensical in their lives. And to go back to your question about this connection from ourselves, just to look at the word depression itself. What does it mean to depress something? It means to push it down. That's what it means. What are we pushing down in depression? We're pushing down our emotions. Why are we pushing it down? Because we learned early in childhood that in order to be acceptable to others, we had to push down our true selves. So that the depression itself is not some sort of mysterious disease. It was a way of coping with an environment that couldn't accept us for who we were. And now the invitation is, as Daniel has just articulated, is to get back to ourselves. It's not that all these mental health conditions don't have their biochemical aspects in the brain. Everything in life has its biochemical aspects in the brain. But to think that they originate in the brain's biochemistry, and therefore the only solution is to correct the biochemistry rather than dealing with what we were pushing down in the first place and getting back to our authentic selves is a complete misdirection. And yet that is the direction of modern psychiatry and modern medicine, which is why it fails so often, despite the fact that medications in themselves can be helpful sometimes, as Diane and I have both experienced. And this brings me to compassionate inquiry, which is such a huge theme in the book. Why is compassionate inquiry so essential in our road to not only healing ourselves, but also attempting to heal culture? So compassionate inquiry is specifically a therapeutic method that I've helped to develop that we're teaching to thousands of therapists around the world online. It's an online, very demanding, very challenging course. But it's also a more general term for an approach to understanding ourselves in the world. So the teacher that I quoted earlier, A. Chalmers, he said that only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. Now Daniel began his conversation by quoting about truth and how painful truth can be. Truth can be painful, and none of us want to hurt. So for people to be able to endure the truth of their lives, they need a lot of compassion for themselves. And one of the impacts of trauma is that we lose compassion for ourselves and often for others as well. So to heal trauma in ourselves and others, you need compassion, and then we need the inquiry. But again, go back to what Diane was saying before. Whatever we're dealing with, if it's a mental health challenge, a physical disease, an addiction, whatever it is, a relationship issue and compulsive patterns, what is this for? What is this here to teach me? So that's the inquiry. Or what is this condition, affliction, what does it manifest about my life? What is it that it's here to teach me about how I've been living and what direction my life could go in if I wanted to heal? So you need the compassion, which is an attitude of acceptance, non-judgment, having absolute acceptance of all parts of ourselves, especially the parts that we don't like, because they all came along for a reason. So that's the compassion part. The inquiry is just a relentless curiosity. Okay, what is this all about? What happened here? What am I doing here? What am I doing here? And am I doing it, or is it compulsive and automatic? So compassion inquiry is a deep inquiry into ourselves, into our culture, 
into everything from a point of view of real acceptance and non-judgment and and um i have to say love actually because and i don't mean love as a gooey emotion love as a real determination to accept and to understand it's a verb it's a verb yeah i'm not gonna lie there were parts of the book i was really quite sad and actually angry about the state of the world and where things have got to from the medical industry to the education system to political climate how do we not give up when we start to realize the huge extensive problems that we're swimming in or how do we not fall into blame and you did mention the word in your last answer Gabor saying acceptance but how do we accept such huge problems that we have to swim in the toxicity of every single day. The acceptance doesn't mean that we like it or we think it should be that way. Acceptance means we're not going to deny that this is the way it is. We accept that this is the way it is so as to be able to examine why it is this way so as to be able to work to make it different. So acceptance is not tolerance for something. It means I'm not going to be full of resentment and I'm not going to be denying it. That's really what acceptance means. You know what? There's a kind of a righteous anger. There's the New Testament story of of Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple. Whether that's a true story or not, it doesn't matter. But what's the message? The message is the, the righteous anger of somebody who thinks that the temple is there for spiritual reasons to get people closer to God, that this should actually be a place of commerce and profit making. Now, without going into the historical background and why they might be necessary to have money changers when people are coming from all over the world to the, you know, that's a whole other story. But a kind of righteous anger that if you look at Britain, for example, and how the British government recently, one government, prominent government member said about the nurses that the, our economy can't afford to pay our nurses a higher income when the billionaire class is getting richer every day. Well, a proper response to that is righteous anger. What on earth are you talking about? Why is it okay for the billionaires to get exponentially richer every day and for these nurses that work so hard under such stressful conditions not to get remunerated at a time of high inflation where their income is actually decreasing? What on earth are you talking about? So a degree of righteous anger, but that's not the same as resentment and it's not the same as non-acceptance. I accept that this is how it is, and I'm going to work to make it different. When you talk about anger in that sense, I totally am aligned with that. The anger that's not helpful is when I'm consumed by the rage, but instead of opening me up and expanding me and making me more compassionate, it makes me more tight and constrained and hostile. You know, that's not healthy or helpful. And lastly, is just to touch upon the six A's to healing, because you give people these tools to leave the book to be able to process all the information that you've given them. Why was this important to include? And I know we've covered some of the A's, but if there is a particular A you'd each like to focus on, that would be amazing. Well, the funny part is there's probably four or five more that we didn't think of. One in particular that my uncle Janos pointed out to my dad is awareness. We didn't say awareness, but without awareness, you're lost. You can't accept you can't tell the difference between healthy and unhealthy anger. Agency is impossible without awareness. Authenticity requires awareness of itself. You know, We also talk about advocacy and activism. All of these are positive qualities, positive states. 
you need a, a careful, nimble understanding of them, like authenticity, for instance. We took care to say in the book that authenticity is not a buzzword. It's not an Instagram meme. It's not a brand. It's not a style. It's not an affect. It's kind of hard to define, except you know when it's not there. Yeah. And you know what it's like to return to it. I think authenticity is something we can return to and learn to dwell in, and it's going to be different for all of us. But when we are touching into our authenticity, I don't like to talk about, I'm finding my authentic self. I'm going to someday just be authentic all the time. No, I don't think that's how human beings work. But as we develop a taste bud for our authenticity, we know where to find it. We know how to get back to it when we lose touch with it. Something harmonizes in us and around us and in our lives. And also authenticity sometimes is just recognizing when we're not. That's right. Maybe retrospectively. Yeah. Then I was talking to somebody, I wasn't being authentic. Well, the, who's the one that's noticing it? You know, so and authenticity is not about perfection. It's about our willingness to be compassionately curious about when we're not being authentic. What kept me from that and what would it look like if I was authentic? So, you know, authenticity is also a verb, as Diane might say, about love, you know. It's a constant inquiry and, and awareness. Lastly, how do you both unwind? Well, I went for my swim. I did my uh, two-kilometer swim this morning, and for me, that's absolutely essential. Every morning? Well, either swimming or some other form of physical exercise. I also have a very brief daily yoga practice, which if I do, my nervous system is a better state. So for me, it's physical exercise, a bit of yoga, nature walking, listening to music, reading. When I don't allow myself these practices, you'll see me as a very tense, sometimes not very pleasant individual, actually. Do you sleep well? Yeah, I, I sleep reasonably well. I wake up a couple of times, but I get back to sleep and I get enough sleep. And do you have a strict bedtime routine or have you always been quite a good sleeper? No, I haven't been a good sleeper because, and that's a trauma impact, actually, that as an infant, I was left too much alone. And that's very scary for an infant. And so I always resisted bedtime because I had to be alone with myself. And so I could never go to sleep, for example, without reading. And sometimes I'd have to read a book and the book would fall on my head because I would drop it and I'd start reading again rather than turn the light out. Right now, it's different because I can accept the states that I'm in and I connect with my body as I sleep. Sometimes I say, I'm not a totally non-religious person, but very frequently I'll utter a prayer. I don't know who I've even praying to, but I'll just do it, you know? And I connect with my body and um, I go to sleep pretty quickly. How about you, Daniel? How do you unwind? I love driving. You know, when I got divorced, I hit the road and I just drove all over North America and it was a way of unwinding narratives and stories and the past, really leaving things behind me, literally changing my point of view, seeing new things. That's really good for my soul. I'd say that's soul unwinding. It's not so good for the body if you, if you only do that, you know, because it does wind you up. Walking is huge for me. I, and if I can swing it, leave the Bluetooth headphones at home, leave the phone at home. I so rarely do it. I really ought to do it more. Playing music for me is a great way of unwinding because it doesn't come from my cognitive brain. I mean, I know a lot about music, but when I'm playing, I am just, I'm allowing myself to plug into something else that doesn't have to be smart, that doesn't have to be right, that doesn't have to worry about the past or the future. That's just right in the moment. Daniel, you just released a new podcast. What is that about and how can we direct people to this? Ah, yes. Well, it's about song lyrics. 
And so on this show, which is called Let's Get Lyrical with Carice and Daniel, my co-host is Carice Van Houten, the actress from Game of Thrones who played Melisandre, the Dutch actress. And we just get together and we talk about song lyrics that we love. We talk about them by theme. So the second episode, which will come out next week, is about songs with God in the title. And we just see wherever the conversation goes based on these song lyrics. And I believe we're going to have Gabor aboard as a special guest for a live stream coming up soon. So people can find that on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And we have a YouTube channel as well. Uh, Let's Get Lyrical with Carice and Daniel. What is a go-to song that you would shout out to anyone for a discovery moment? Well, our first episode is called Please to Meet Us. And in it, me and Chris and I both brought three songs that introduced something about ourselves. She brought a song from West Side Story, and she brought a Joni Mitchell song. I also brought a Joni Mitchell song. And it's not one of the ones that people usually think of when they think of Joni Mitchell, Both Sides Now, or River, or A Case of You. It's called Hegira, and it's the title track off her 1976 masterpiece album, Hegira, which is a road trip album. And it's about going on a road trip after a difficult breakup and reconnecting with yourself and losing yourself and reconnecting with yourself. You know, some of the lyrics, I'm porous with travel fever, but you know, I'm so glad to be on my own, but still the slightest touch of a stranger can set up a trembling in my bones. I know no one's going to show me everything. We all come and go alone, each so deep and superficial between the forceps and the stone. I want that on my gravestone. I mean, we are so each so deep and so superficial. And if we can embrace these paradoxes in ourselves, to me, that's where the secret chord really rings out. That's amazing. Isn't that an amazing line? That really is. Speaking of podcasts, being an opportunist, then I'm going to have one as well because we're writing a new book. It's yep. called Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Adult Children and Their Parents. It, it has to do with the rupture between so many adult kids and their parents and how to repair it or how to just improve the relationship. Certainly a journey that they are. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I have traveled and, uh, and that's going to be, in preparation for writing the book, we're going to be having this podcast on the subject. I don't know when exactly, but it's going to happen. It'll be in the second half of this year, I think. Okay. Well, we will make sure we put links to that one that is live. And I can't wait to listen to that podcast. Both podcasts um, sound absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you so much both for your time. I can't tell you how grateful I am. So are we. Thank you very much. Great to meet you and uh, take care. Yeah, and thanks, Skip, for giving me an opportunity to hang out with my dad. It's been a while. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well.